So good morning, Wellspring family and friends. Uh, good to be with you today. After quite a few weeks away from preaching, um, but still being with you here during the week and here on Sundays, I'm really excited to be in the Word with you all today. Um, as many of you might know, uh, I've been working really hard on trying to get uh, this old home um, uh, set up for my family and I to move into. Um, our renting lease was up and we were able to find some place to move into and, and call more of our own home, uh, which has been really exciting. And it's been taking up a lot of time over the last few weeks. I have some pictures, I think, to share of you, uh, with you of some of the process so far, just to kind of let you in. Um, and I would love if you have any pictures over the last few weeks that you'd like to share with me after service that kind of share how things have been going. Just take out your phone and I'll know exactly what you're doing. I'm like, oh, let me hear your update. Um, so let me go ahead and turn this on. And here we go. First slide. Um, oops, I think I'm in the song right now. Ooh. Oh, Stacy figured out. Okay, so here we are. This is our kitchen. Yay! I'm so thankful. This is before the TLC. So we've been working on uh, putting some TLC in here, like demoing. You couldn't see there was a rest of the kitchen all the way through. So demoing. And then here I am with my respirator like sweeping stuff up in the bedroom next door. Like, Dan, that's kind of an unflattering photo, but that you see the scope. I'm in there sweeping. There's the kitchen. <laughs> I'm so thankful that Dan takes photos. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any of this documented. Uh, and kind of sketching out where things are going to go and then kind of framing it up. And it's coming together and then finally painting and putting things in. So things are coming along and I'm incredibly thankful. Uh, it's also been a lot of work over the last few weeks. And I just want to say thank you because uh, so many of you, I've asked you for advice. Those of you for, who are handy, I've asked you for like, what do I do first? How do I do this? You've been so helpful um, in your prayers and your thoughtfulness to us. And like the other day, we had so many people painting there. I wanted to take a picture. I think little Hannah and Andre were like painting right next to each other. And that was so sweet to see. I wish I'd taken a photo of that. They did a great job. I went and there's like no streaks. So Faye, your quality control is phenomenal. Or maybe it's maybe you, you Han. I don't know who was in charge, but it looks great. <laughs> so it's been fun, but it's really exhausting. And let me tell you, I don't want to move for a very long while. <laughs> I think I'm like, I'm done. I'm done moving. Um, and while I'm so incredible, I'm so incredibly overjoyed and feeling um, just incredible thankfulness for having um, a more stable housing experience here um, amongst our family and church family. I'm also aware at the same time that this is incredibly unstable time in the world in recent history. This is a very unstable time right now. <clears throat> it's as though there are different epicenters of pain and violence and wrongdoing in the world. And they're just kind of stretching out, sort of ripping the veneer of our of what looks like peace between us, stretching the, the bonds between nations, kind of breaking our tenuous connections together. And if you felt worried in new ways, please know that you're not alone. And I'm praying that today the words of our scripture text taken from a very difficult time in Old Testament history will be timely for you and that you will sense Holy Spirit speaking through them uh, to, to be able to give you what you need to hear today. So I just want to invite you into a prayer of dedication as we go into the word today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now here at Wellspring, since September, we've been in a series going through the Old Testament. 
And we started out in Genesis, and we're moving through pit stops in the children of Israel's history along the way, using the table as a metaphor for God's action and interaction with us, the place where God meets us and all of creation. We're using a table as a metaphor. We're in, invited to see that through Jesus, each one of us has a seat at the table. Each of us are invited to participate at the table, not just to sit there, but to participate. And at this table, we've seen over the last few weeks, we bring ourselves and everything that comes with us, right? We bring all the things we're dragging to the table. So it might be our hopes, our fears, our promises, our broken promises, our giftings, our talents. We bring it all, our family histories, you name it. We bring it to the table. And some people might feel like, yeah, actually, I think I've earned a seat at this table. I should be here. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Some people might feel like nothing I could ever do could earn me a seat at this table. And yet you're invited to. Everyone has a seat at this table through Jesus. Everyone is invited to come. Now, individually, we might each have a seat at the table, but we also corporately as a church community have a seat at God's table. If we can imagine Wellspring coming as a community to God's table, I can imagine we bring with us our hopes for the future, some of the stress and weariness of having just moved, right? Because we just moved as a church community from the building where we've been for years to this space, right? We bring that with us. We bring our excitement. We bring all the ways that we're tired of change. We bring all that with us. Now, if you've lived long enough, I think you'll discover that there are tables that you would like to sit at and tables that you would not like to sit at. I still remember, I have this very vivid memory of being in the third grade. And my parents were on the continent, they were on the mainland, visiting some churches and families that supported them. And I grew up uh, as a missionary kid in the Philippines. And so we were visiting this one family my parents hadn't seen in a while. And the table was full, so they created a kid's table, but it was just me and this other third grader I think his name was Duffy. That's the name that's in my mind. Maybe that's not his name, but in my mind, it's Duffy. It's Duck. I don't know how it's Duck, but it's there. I don't think I've ever seen this kid again. But anyway, we were there. I, we were having Thanksgiving food. I don't know if it was Thanksgiving dinner, but I just remember on my plate was mashed potatoes, turkey, and gravy, which was very unusual food for us because I grew up eating like rice and veggies. So I remember sitting at this kid's table, and I remember not really wanting to be at this table because this dear little boy, Duffy, he had a cold. <laughs> I'm going to get a little gross. He just had a little string of yellow running down his nose, <laughs> and it never went away. And he couldn't sniff it back up, and I was too embarrassed. I was too embarrassed to be like, yo, Duffy, you got something right there. <laughs> and I think he was oblivious. Maybe he always had it there. I don't know. So the entire dinner, I had to sit at this little table with just one little kid watching this string go down trying to eat my mashed potatoes and gravy oh and almost ruined mashed potatoes for me but not quite i still like mashed potatoes it was a table i would rather not be at right and i think that in many ways we've all sat at tables perhaps like metaphorically or figuratively over the years that we'd rather not be at some because of reasons that might make us chuckle and some because of much more serious and complicated reasons perhaps you've been at a table you would rather not go back to but friends, a table where God is host is a table you wouldn't want to leave because it's a table where God brings all of God's capacities and gifts and salvation and goodness to us. 
Now, if we could use our holy imaginations for a minute, um, I'd like to invite you into a thought exercise. Can we do this just for a second? Um, I want you to imagine what you can, uh, to picture what you can of God's character, um, the range of God's goodness. And it's going to be hard because God's infinite and we have finite minds. So if you want to imagine as sort of dishes on a table, maybe really good mashed potatoes, excellent kimchi fried rice, phenomenal gouji, whatever you want to think about it. I want you to imagine God's goodness and the different gifts God has as dishes on a table. Can we do that for a minute? Let's just close our eyes. And I want you to imagine this table filling up with God's faithfulness, God's salvation, God's provision, God's character of kindness, God's never giving up, never stopping love. This table is spread for you. Can you imagine it? It's a table where God brings God's own life and death to us. As we finish this thought exercise, I want to invite you to imagine along these, these words of Julian of Norwich. And she was a, a saint and a mystic who lived during the Dark Ages. And this is what she said as she did this thought exercise. She says this, my mind was lifted up to heaven and I saw our Lord as a Lord in his own house where he had called his much loved friends and servants to a banquet. I saw that the Lord did not sit at one place, but ranged throughout the house, filling it with joy and gladness. He himself courteously and companionably greeted and delighted his dear friends with love shining from his face, like a marvelous melody that has no end. This is the table, the table you just envisioned in your thought exercise the table that many saints and many people of faith have envisioned over the years. It's a table that we find ourselves at um, in today's text, but it's not a table that's easily seen because today's text is a very difficult one. It's a text where actually it looks like God is no longer host. And it looks as though you are no longer at God's table, but someone else's table entirely. Pastor Dale last week actually set up the text for today. Um, if we can just go back really quickly to last week, uh, he was reading this passage in Ezekiel and I think Micah. It was basically hundreds of years after King David, um, Israel's best king. Um, the children of Israel had run after the gods of all the surrounding nations around them and had embraced their warlike, violent ways. There was one particular country they kind of emulated in, in their, their gods and the culture, and that was uh, Babylon. And... Um, during that time that they're running after sort of the gods of all these places, different prophets rise up to warn people. So the prophet Ezekiel in the passage last week had this vision of the glory of God leaving Jerusalem and physically leaving the temple to warn people, hey, stop what you're doing. This is not the way. God's way of, of shalom and goodness and salvation does not involve behaving like these nations around you. So Ezekiel prophesied, Micah prophesied, he was another prophet whose writings we, we read last week. He's the one who said, you know what is good. What does God require of you but to love, but to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with God? So these warnings have come in. People saying, prophets saying, hey, you know what to do. Prophets sharing dire doom. If you keep persisting, the glory of the Lord is going to leave. Terrible things are going to happen. And unfortunately then, kind of like now, uh, sometimes we don't listen. Sometimes our prophets come and go and we don't actually listen to them until after, after they're dead. 
And so that's what happened in this case. And one day the king of Babylon decided he wanted a piece of the Israel pie. He wanted a piece of the Jerusalem pie and he laid siege to Jerusalem and God let the chips fall where they may. Israel was defeated. And that brings us to today's passage. The word of the Lord from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, some were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To to Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So friends, this text is written in a really matter-of-fact way. It's just sharing facts. And yet it's describing a scene of absolute devastation. The city had been laid siege to, which meant cutting off food and water, which impacted not just soldiers and military personnel, but children and women, people in labor, the kupuna who were sick. It impacted the whole fabric of society, much like what is happening now in the Middle East. This kind of military action that they went through, it didn't discern between who was guilty and who was innocent. It just painted with very broad strokes and impacted everybody. And the trauma of this is incredible, right? It passes on in one's DNA, right? Literal changes to your DNA from one generation to another as the pain and violation continue. So those, those people who survived siege, those who survived the siege survived the lack of water, right? Survived the seeing all their family members gradually weaken, survived saying goodbye to many family members who died, then survived the warfare as the king breached the walls and subdued the city. Many of them were taken captive hundreds of miles away. Some scripture passages say in chains. They were taken away. The temple, which had been the epicenter of their community life, their hopes for the future, was razed to the ground and burned. The quality items of gold and silver and brass, which had been so lovingly put together, were taken. Not just were they taken, but they were put in the king of Babylon's temple treasury. They were placed in the temple of Babylon's God. And the text tells us that more than just artifacts were taken. People were taken, but were treated like artifacts by the king of Babylon. He got the temple goods and he got the best of their people all to be put in use of empire. So when you imagine this, the people are young. Scripture says um, young, young men, describes Daniel's young men. They're probably in their very young teens. If we're to do some of math in Daniel. And in one fell swoop, their whole life was taken from them, their families, right? They brought all these miles away 
to be educated in the language, customs, history um, of the empire Babylon. Nothing about their lives is under their control anymore. They have to eat, sleep, study, work, all at the pleasure of the king of Babylon. Can you imagine what the table of their life with God must feel like? It must feel like it was ransacked. I wish this a story, I wish this was a story that was never repeated, but the truth is that this is a universal story. Empires will empire. Some are extremely bloodthirsty. Some have higher hopes for the world. I actually grew up in a country that had been colonized by the U.S. and uh, forcibly colonized by the U.S. And you know, the scars of that still remain, as well as shared brotherhood from fighting alongside each other in World War II for freedom. There's many layers. For these teens in Daniel 1, they found themselves in this bloodthirsty empire in the midst of the situation where all of this was out of their control. And there at the ransacked table, they found a way forward that honored God and themselves. These young teens, they found a way forward that made space for themselves, that reoriented them towards God. These clever teens, these courageous teens, they discovered the path of holy resistance the path of holy resistance. Let's continue in our text. Starting in verse eight, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, it's the king of Babylon, who has assigned you your food and drink. Remember the text tells us from the king's table, right? Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you, right? Nobody's safe in this, in this, not, not the newcomers, not the ones who are in charge of them. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. This brings us to number one in your notes. When the table of my life with God is ransacked, develop a wise resistance that reorients. When the table of my life with God has been ransacked, develop a wise resistance that reorients. Let's just unpack this for a minute. Um, when my kids were little, uh, one of the first ways they exercised independence from Dan and myself was in the food they ate, right? At that stage when they're maturing, you know, when they're in a car seat, they might not have a lot of say about where they go. You know, they might go with dad to the store. They might go with mom to choir practice, but they did have a say over what they ate. Green bean mash, no thank you. Sweet potatoes, yes. So eating is one of the first ways we exercise uh, influence over our environment when we enter this world. Now, when we eat or drink much like what we wear or how we speak, this constitutes expression of our self-identity, right? Then as well as now. The empire viewed Daniel's body as belonging to them, kind of like the temple vessels they stored up. It was an asset to be used in the purposes of empire, right? As they controlled everything about him, where he slept, what he did during the day, what language he's speaking in, what name they're going to call him by. And they tried to control what he ate or drank but that's where they decided to resist. And if you think about it, food 
It's so important to so many of our cultures, right? And in the Jewish culture, it was so important to their worship and way of being. Um, meat and wine were festival food. The last thing these young boys would be wanting to eat as they're separated from their family and in a foreign country. I remember when, one summer I was in Chicago and I was uh, working um, in between semesters at Wheaton and um, I was working at a bagel shop. It was a Jewish bagel shop, it was kosher. And um, I didn't know very much about kosher um, rituals or the importance or meaning of it um, up until then. And I learned a lot while I was there. And unfortunately, I learned a lot. Sometimes you're doing the wrong thing. Um, I, I always knew that food is important, you know, to the Jewish people. And when you read through the Old Testament, you could see all these rituals related to food. I didn't know very much about, you know, the different, um, the different streams of the Jewish faith and their practice. But I was working in one um, that, uh, that catered to a very orthodox crowd which meant we had separate counters and back for goods for like cream cheese that were dairy related or for things that maybe might have like locks like salmon or, or wheat. So one day I was talking to the owner and we were in the middle of talking and I'm carrying a tub of cream cheese. As I'm talking to the owner, I just kind of go and I put it on a counter as the owner's like, no, 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 no. And I, uh, I put, un unfortunately, I put the cream cheese on a counter that's not supposed to be used for dairy. And I was very thankful they didn't fire me. They were very gracious. I was very penitent. I think they had to have a, a rabbi come and fix what I did. I don't know, but it, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was a bad faux pas I made. I was so clueless. And so Daniel here, right, food is very important and food has been part of his religion and the way that he honors God. And so here he chooses as his resistance, something that will orient him back to God in all the ways that empire is putting pressure on him to become a certain sort of human. Daniel pushes back in this widest resistance in a way that reorients him back to God in a way that brings him back to the God of his ancestors, in a way that tangibly, three times a day when he goes to eat, reminds him of creator God, whose table seems like it's gone, but perhaps isn't. Now, for those of us who live here in this time and place in a very different context, it can be really hard to feel the weight of this text, right? We as Christians, we are not facing the kind of struggle that Daniel and his friends were in the Babylonian Empire. But where we might be able to engage with this and feel the weight of this is in the weight of loss. You might feel like you've been displaced from God's table. There might be times in your life that you remember feeling whether it's because of someone else's sin towards you, or maybe because of a choice you made, maybe because um, of a situation you were in that just made you feel so far from God, you might feel like you've been displaced from God's table. Perhaps the table feels as though it's been ransacked. We can feel this individually as well as corporately, right? The church in the West, the church, um, is not viewed the same way it used to be. I remember reading an article in 2018, this is before COVID, and it was kind of a depressing article to read as a new pastor. I was just beginning um, my, my, my work and my walk with you all. And I, I read this Barna article and it was basically being like how pastors um, are viewed by our society and pastors used to be a more respected profession. Um, and uh, they moved their way considerably down the list. I think it's something like uh, they were eighth on the list in 2018. 
uh, less trustworthy than judges, daycare providers, police officers, pharmacies, medical doctors, grade school teachers, military officers, and then nurses. And then somewhere down there, you get like pastors. And I don't know what it is now. I think that list has changed around a lot since 2018, sometimes a shift. Uh, but I remember thinking, oh, dang, like that's what I'm that's what I'm entering. Like, <laughs> you know, I think it was different when my dad was becoming a pastor. You know, wow, things have changed. So we're corporately feeling this weight of displacement. The other day I saw a puzzle at the store and um, it showed this kind of suburban um, American, like it was like an Americana puzzle. And it showed, you know, the, the fire department. It was this cute little scene. It showed Christmas trees. It looked very mainlandy. Um, it showed all these like little, little pet shop, it showed all these. And I'm, I'm looking, I saw a school, I saw a daycare center, I saw a pet shop, I saw the fire fire hall. I'm looking like, I'm like, is there a church? And then way in the background, I saw like the spires. <laughs> Everyone else was labeled like pet store, you know, and the, the church was way in the distance. I thought, oh, that's kind of how it is now, right? So we might be feeling the weight of displacement. And yet the, the story of Daniel reminds us that when the table is ransacked, when the worst happens, when stock markets fluctuate, when currencies devalue, when countries ally against each other, when we find ourselves sitting at the temple of empire in front of a pagan king determined to manipulate himself into more power, Daniel reminds us that the table of God's presence and action in the world is never completely lost, that there is holy resistance in ways that encourage agency and hope that reorient us back to God question I have for you is this. What actions reorient me towards God's table? It's in your notes as well. When it seems like your life with God is, you know, the table has been turned over. What actions reorient you back towards God? If you were to reset the table, you know, take those forks that are on the ground and find the broken dish and start putting it back on the table. What actions reorient you towards God? Bring you towards a reset. These are in your notes. You can spend more time on them later too. I want to move to number two in your notes. When the table of my life with God is ransacked, nurture hope in God's rescuing and reclamation. Nurture hope in God's rescuing and reclamation. Let's go ahead and read the final part of our text for today. And we'll have read through all of Daniel 1 at this. So yay, we read a whole, a whole chapter today. Here we go, starting in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. You might wonder, well, what's that got to do with God's rescuing and reclamation? 
Sure, it's great Daniel didn't pay a big price for wanting to eat his veggies and water, but what about God's rescuing and reclamation is there? You know, the chapter ends and Daniel's still in exile. Isn't that what it says? Let's, let's go ahead and look at that last verse in Daniel 1 again. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, we all see that, right? Now, there's a lot about the book of Daniel that doesn't easily translate into English. And I don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic, but I'm very happy to have um, apps on my computer that will help me. <laughs> I studied it back in seminary, but I can't just pick it up and read it, unfortunately. Um, but as I was looking through it this past week, a couple things stood out to me. Well, one is that, you know, the book of Daniel is written in multiple languages. The first part is in Hebrew. The middle part is in Aramaic. And the third part is in Hebrew again. So it's, you can see it's compiling over time. There's a lot about Daniel that doesn't translate in English, right? One is it, one is that it's in multiple languages. Another thing that we can't tell, or at least I can't tell when I read this chapter in English, I can't tell that it's highly ironic. I can't tell that at all. Like, for example, in the names, right? We see the forcible renaming of Daniel and his friends, and that, that feels like another violation, right? Another trying to erase cultural memory and history. Um, but the thing is, in the, in the names, the names the Hebrew captains are given are very comical. They poke fun at a Babylonian god, each one a different Babylonian god. So for people reading this, they would think, oh, they would kind of be in on the joke. The other thing is that the king here, when we read this chapter, we see that the king of Babylon is referred to, I don't know, something like 15 times, like the king, the king, the king, the king. It's kind of like setting up this idea that like the king of Babylon is the shiz. Like he owns everything. He's the one who took these captives. He's the one that has all the temple things, like the king. But then it ends with a totally different king. Verse 121, King Cyrus. I think I have that in there. Oh, I'll bring our next thing. King Cyrus and King Cyrus, friends, is a totally different king from a totally different empire. And it signals the end of the king of Babylon. It signifies the end of that empire as the way it was. And it signifies the return of the captives. So we have set up this king of Babylon who thinks he owns everything and it ends, boom, another king. It ends with the return, begins with the exile begins with them sending everybody out, with people being forced out, with the, their temple articles taken. And it ends with the king who will send them back home, who will empower them to rebuild. It ends with the king who actually returns back their temple articles. If you go and you read the book of Ezra chapter one, it has this really long list of all the temple articles that came back with the captives that were safe with them in Babylon, while they were stuck there, the temple articles were with them and traveled back home with them. So when it seemed like all hope was lost, when it seemed like God was no longer the host of the table, when it seems like all the tables have turned, we see that God kept this group, this remnant alive in their holy resistance, reorienting them back to God. God brought them to a place where the exile would be over or at least for many over. So for people still in exile, because not everybody was able to go back, people still in exile reading this book, they would be reminded, wow, Daniel was able to make it all the way through his exile. Maybe I can make it through mine. All may not be lost when it feels like it is lost. If you continue reading in the book of Daniel, you'll see there's a whole apocalyptic passage 
uh, all these passages where Daniel is recounting his dreams and his visions. And he's using a specific genre of Hebrew literature known as apocalyptic um, to write this. And apocalyptic language uh, literature is very like highly stylized. It uses very figurative language to, to um, channel truth about who God is and what's going on around us, um, as well as give hope and guidance for the future. And it does it in a way that maybe the empire won't kill you while you're writing about their demise. <laughs> so apocalyptic is a very highly stylized uh, way of, of sharing truth. That they used and Daniel uses a lot of apocalyptic language, but in Daniel seven, Daniel envisions a day that all these kings and kingdoms of the world, all these empires, and he describes them as beasts because humans can act like beasts sometimes. All these humans who, who've grown to act like beasts, one by one, they come and they go and they come and they go. But what remains is God's presence working through people's faithful resistance. What remains is at the end of the day, God shows up as rescuer and reclaimer to wipe the table clean, to invite us into the new heavens and new earth. And this is a solid hope we have, a solid hope that Daniel had. Now, in a minute, I'm going to invite, invite Peter up to share a little bit, because a lot of this is really big stuff, right? It's people taken captive, going to countries that are not their own, right? We have cultural erasure. We have all these things. But what about in our life? You know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in Sunday school. One of the things I heard was dare to be a Daniel. I thought, does this mean I need to become vegetarian? You know, <laughs> what does it mean to be a Daniel? And so um, uh, in a few minutes, Peter's going to come up and just share with us a little bit about what it looks like to when it feels like your table's been ransacked to reorient yourself back to God. So we get to have like a real life picture of what this looks like. But before we do that, I just want to um, note one thing. That's, I think it's easy to come to a text like this and hear, oh, have hope in the God who will rescue and reclaim. And it kind of sounds like it's just optimism, like be an optimist, you know, hold on, hold on to the optimism, you know, a better day is coming. It can kind of sound like that. And yet what I'm talking about is not optimism, or at least not my description of optimism. It's not just thinking in some kind of positivity think speak. I was reading, and let me unpack that for you. I was reading this book this past week called, um, it's Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book. And in it, she talks about her experience of reading another book, a book I haven't read yet called Good to Great. I might need to put it on my list. And this book describes uh, this phenomenon known as the Stockdale Paradox. I'm gonna put it up there just so you can kind of see it. The Stockdale Paradox. And I had never heard of this paradox before. Apparently it's used in some like uh, philosophy circles. So I had to Google it. And what I found about the Stockdale Paradox was actually about a human being known, um, his name is Jim Stockdale, where we get this paradox name from. And Jim Stockdale, I was able to find an interview with him too. He was an admiral and he was the highest ranking officer in the US Army who was taken captive as a prisoner of war at the height of the Vietnam War. And he was imprisoned as a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton, which was a notorious place there was a lot of really inhumane behavior happening there. He was tortured many times while he was there. He was there for eight years. After he got out, he reunited with his wife, with his family. He became a national hero. He wrote a book with his wife who had been holding on to her own hope. They kind of co-wrote it together. And he got to spend the later years of his life studying philosophy at Stanford. I read this interview with him and he was asked, how he survived, 
How did he deal with so much terror and pain when the table had been so ransacked of his life? This is what he said. He says this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. I believe he said that. So he and his interview, they were slowly walking around and he's shuffling because he's a stiff leg that never quite recovered from his torture. The interviewer asked him, well, you made it out, but who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, Stockdale said. The optimists. The optimists? I don't understand. Yes, the optimists, Jim said. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. There was a long pause and more walking. Then Jim Stockdale turned to his interviewer, and this is what he said. He said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. This is the paradox. Never losing hope, and as Christians, that God will prevail in the end. And at the same time, reading the room accurately discerning what's going on, naming the hard stuff. This is the paradox. This is how Jim made it through. Brene Brown calls this gritty faith, faith that doesn't give up, and gritty facts, facts that say, but we are here right now. These two things together, gritty faith and gritty facts, enable Jim to make it through. And friends, those two things enable Daniel to make it through. So for us, as we seek to reorient ourselves back to God, what might that look like? Our gritty faith and our gritty facts. Let's have Peter come on up. I'd love to hear how this played out in your life, Peter. You might remember we had, um, during one of Pastor Cheryl's sermons, we heard from her Hanai daughter, Jamie. And then the next week, we got to hear from Daisy. We got to hear from Nathan Kohashi during Pastor Dale's sermon. So everyone, if you can welcome with me, Peter. Hello, Chuck. All right. Um, yeah, thank you, PR. Um, as I read and read the passage and heard um, Pastor Rebecca share, I was immediately reminded of a few moments in my life um, where I felt ransacked. So um, just I can recall some moments in, you know, being bullied in the first grade, um, just the sense of humiliation, pain, confusion. Um, later on, my father passed from liver cancer at the age of 50. And I was 11 years old, so, um, you know, feeling the grief, the loneliness, and the sorrow. Um, during my early teenage years, uh, I processed my grief by seeking approval, making some poor choices, and ultimately suffering some of the consequences of those actions. Um, in my senior year, I realized the gravity of those consequences and um, knew that some things needed to change. So, um, Thus began my journey to recenter my life and make necessary adjustments to part ways from uh, my days of causing mischief. Um, I graduated high school and I felt um, that weight of restitution. Um, at the time, I thought it was a 
such a large amount. It was, uh, you know, I, I entered into my college years with $25,000 of debt due to vandalizing, vandalizing. And, um, I remember, so, um, just a quick story of like distinctly remembering parking my car at a transit center once to take the max light rail in Portland. And upon returning to my surprise, the car was no longer there. And um, I called the police and, you know, filed the report and just felt despondent. And um, though I received a call the next day that the, um, the vehicle was recovered, um, I was also notified that it was not in any sort of drivable condition. So uh, the speakers, wheels, body parts, the, the doors, vendor seats, the shift knob was removed. So there was, there was really like just, it was just a frame on, uh, on the side of the road. And um, yeah, I, I remember in the coming months riding my bike and taking public transit and um, there being a time where I locked my bike up and then sure enough, when I came back, the bike was gone too. So it's just like to add insult to injury, it just felt like, oh, you know, like how could this get any worse? And, you know, these, I, I realized I share these things not for you to feel sorry for me. Um, I recognize that many of my experiences are first world problems. Um, but to me, they felt heavy, and at times I questioned the nearness of God. Um, I felt distanced, and at times I didn't feel welcomed or didn't know that I had a seat at the table. So, But the story doesn't end there. Um, over time, I received... Um, I ended up with the gift of receiving many vehicles, actually multiple. Um, so not just one, but multiple timely blessings from different givers and um, that have allowed for increased mobility, autonomy, flexibility to go greater distances. Um, I had gained spiritual fathers, mentors, um, and friends who encouraged me along my journey. And time and time again, my testimony is full of these God moments where their narrative changes and where weariness turns to joy and gladness. Um, I could share just many more stories. Um, I realize we're also awaiting the potluck lunch, so I'll keep it short. Um, <laughs> yeah, we could talk after. Um, but uh, yeah, just you know, to contrast some of the, the struggles of the joblessness or grunt work and times I got fired, to also just share like the silver lining of, you know, if it weren't for these moments, I wouldn't be where I am today. So though I won't claim that my life is struggle-free, um, I am constantly reminded of God's goodness, the way that God speaks life, that God speaks truth, the way that God speaks love and dignity um, over me and over us. So, um yeah, the way that God just calls us to greater things than what the world can provide. So it's not just material things being returned and yay, all is good. It's it's really more, much more than that. So though this brief glimpse into the story of my life pales in comparison to maybe many of the life or death struggles of war-torn countries or, you know, the story of Daniel, the story of Jim Stockdale, um, my hope is that you know, we're reminded of the ways that we can further reorient our focus on God and cling to the hope of God's rescuing and reclamation in our lives.
Thank you, Peter. So friends, here we are at the, the tail end of our time together. What reorients you back to God's table? And it feels like things have been ransacked, cars stolen, things taken from you, instability in the world. What resistance can you incorporate that reorients you to God? And how might you hold on to gritty faith and gritty facts? The fact that you still owe 25K and didn't have a car. And also, somehow you trusted in God. And here you are today. You don't have that. Do you still have the 25K? No, I shouldn't have put him on the spot like that. <laughs> and you have many cars later. So friends, let's, let's pray. Lord God of Daniel and Peter, and each of us here, thank you for always inviting us to your table, even when it feels we may be at someone else's table. You are still somehow inviting us to make space, to reorient ourselves to your presence, which is always available, always here, even in our most difficult moments. Thank you for being a God we can rely on, a God who offers us a sure hope amidst the gritty facts of our time. Help us to hold on to both, Lord, understanding where we are now, as well as holding on to hope that you are a God of rescue and reclamation whose kingdom will never end and who will set a table for all who will come through Jesus. A table where all can be fed, where all are met as treasured guests and friends, where there's enough for all. Be with us as we continue in our worship. We offer you all our prayers in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.